to the Conscious Culture Cafe, the podcast that explores how you can lean into your purpose, live your values, and enhance your social impact through your work. I'm your host, Kathy Miller-Perkins. My guest today is Judy Ellis. She is a coach, a business consultant, and a facilitator with over 30 years of experience untangling complex interpersonal and organizational dynamics, particularly those related to diversity and inclusion. Judy and I were introduced a little over a year ago and have been working together almost from the day we met. Her company, Think People, and my company, Miller Consultants have formed a strategic partnership. I so enjoy working with Judy. She has so many insights and tips and thoughts to share with you today. I can't wait to get started. Let's go. Judy, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you, and I so enjoy working with you. Because we work together, I know a lot about what you do and about your background, but would you share a little bit of that with the listeners? Yes. Kathy, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to work with you as well. As you said, you know a lot about me, but I will say most of my professional life was built on a 10-year career where I started with Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati out of undergraduate school. And what I learned through that experience of being in a large global company, the systems, et cetera, was invaluable for my career. I also learned there that while I had an aptitude for some professions like finance, where I started, (laughs) that I didn't really have a passion and that my passion was for more of the people side of the business. Mm. So after moving into human resources and finishing my career in corporate communications, I left and co-founded a business with my husband that worked on diversity equity and inclusion management and have been working in that business for 20 years. And in the last two years, I opened my own business, Think People, because one of the things I found was that we were often being told only work on the issues of underrepresented groups when we were in companies Our strong point was training and facilitation. And while I love and enjoy training and facilitation and teaching, I even teach a workforce diversity class at the University of Cincinnati, I knew that people issues are more systemic and that they're all interrelated and interconnected. And so I wanted to bring more of the skill set of organizational change management to the diversity, equity, and inclusion discussion and really work on the broader culture issues, as well as work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let's start with a question that I've been thinking about, and that is, it seems like things have changed in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space since the pandemic and since the George Floyd incident. Could you tell me what your experience has been with DEI in the last few months as a result of these crises? Oh, if you talk about change, this is the most significant period of change I've ever had professionally. But for 20 years, as I've been working in the DEI space, 
we have had a shifting away from wanting to talk directly about issues of racial and cultural diversity. Um, And while in many ways, I think the move toward inclusion is significant and important, and I completely affirm it, that in some organizations, that meant that they were no longer having discussions or looking at issues of racial equity and tension that can be caused or exclusion that could happen by race, ethnicity, nationality. And in broadening the discussion, in some ways, we watered down the look or the the focus on these groups that are the most excluded. And some groups are more stigmatized than others. It's a sociology construct. And in America, you cannot really deal with diversity and inclusion issues without making sure you're including conversations of race and racial equity. Let me ask you a question, Judy. Why do you think it was watered down? How did that happen or why did that happen? Well, why I believe it happened as a student of human nature is that it's more difficult to talk about things that we don't understand or are the most unlike us. And for a while, diversity became just focused on behavioral instruments like Myers-Briggs and DISC and I'm green, you're red, which that is important because the inclusion piece talks about there are many ways that we are different. And at our core is our identity or personality, which is a significant difference. And as I know, you know, in corporations, many extroverts have predominance because they are quick to speak up and aren't as reflective like me, so we could just babble on and often get more attention where there may be some introverts who are very deep thinkers and need time to process. So it's important to help people know that there are many dimensions of difference, but the excitement on, oh, I'm an E and I'm an ENFP and you're an ESTJ (laughs) and people putting their labels on their office cubicle And so that became, it's much more comfortable to talk about that than it is to say, why do we only have 1% ethnic minorities in our organization? And let's look at that when we're talking about this issue. That's a very good point. So I think it's just got watered down, so to speak, but we've even had to do things like move away from calling the effort a diversity and inclusion effort in many companies because of the fear of backlash by majority employees. It seems to me that people use the term diversity, equity, and inclusion in a variety of ways. Would you give me your definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially as it relates to the workplace? Diversity is really about the ways that we are different and it really was equated to racial and ethnic minorities. So years ago, I was asked when I worked at that global packaged goods company 
to serve on many committees to represent diverse stakeholders since I'm African-American. That kind of is what was an unintended consequence of the focus strictly on underrepresented groups was that there was accounting, so to speak, although I'm not against measurement. But if your only focus is on numbers and you say, we need to make sure we have 40% women in this role, I want to have 10% ethnic minorities, then it can turn into a checking the box type of equation where an assumption is I may be lowering the bar to fill the numbers. Although this is not true, women, ethnic minorities, etc., are just as qualified and capable as any other. So in many ways, inclusion, which is bringing more authenticity and a sense of belonging for the people that are diverse and are there is more of the goal that we're working towards in the last five to 10 years. Oh, that's great. So how did that change? I mean, how did that, it makes sense, but how did companies start recognizing that they needed to turn from just looking at the numbers? Well, I think many of the underrepresented populations were getting what we now term microaggressions where Ah. people were saying things like, well, you're only here because they needed a woman or someone gets promoted and the office gossip is, well, it's because they're Latinx and you know, there's a big focus. The company's trying to fill roles with people like that. Oh man. (laughs) I know, aren't we human beings? Hilarious. The ways we can find to discount and disqualify, especially in competitive environments, is sometimes stunning. Oh, it's awful. But what the real inclusion discussion has done is to broaden the look and to make sure all stakeholders are involved, that everyone understands Part of your diversity in your corporation might be that frontline workers who aren't degreed feel that their voices aren't heard. And an auto major auto manufacturer we work with, that was their issue. That many of the men who worked on the line who didn't have degrees, but worked with the machines, so to speak, on a daily basis would feel discounted when the engineers came through. So for them, their functional difference caused them not to feel as respected. Uh And so helping, that's often our way in when we do training, is to start with some of the ways that we're different that are less emotionally charged. Oh, interesting. So that people can understand what it is we're talking about. So at our core... We have this personality difference, but then a layer out, we have our visible differences in gender identity, which are observable Mm -hmm. and easily seen. And then we keep moving out organizationally. We have differences, be it socioeconomically. We have differences in our functional roles and organization. So in many ways, when we talk about it in that way, And we say, you guys know that there's 
a stigma with some differences that has more weight than others. So if you're a disabled female from an ethnic minority, who would want to get that role in life versus others? And we talk about why is that? Why would you not want to? Well, it would be harder to get around. Well, people might judge me. Well, blah, blah, Uh blah. And is it better to have a degree in your company or not to have a college degree? Which one would you prefer? So when we start people seeing that, you know that in real life, societally, there is a judgment or a perception that's made and the, and it's not equal. There are different weights of stigma associated with the ways that we are different. Mm-hmm. And once people buy into going, yeah, that's true because I grew up on the south side of town and that was, you know, the bad side and right. et cetera, then they can begin to say, okay, so how might you take that learning and apply it to being a woman engineer and the only one in an entire company. What might that experience be like? So inclusion really is about people authentically bringing even traditionally excluded groups into the processes, the decision-making, the activities in a way that shares power and ensures equal access to opportunity and that there's a sense of belonging, that I really have a seat at the table the same as anyone else in kind of the idea marketplace in my work, I can be heard just like anyone else. Well, that's really interesting the way you go about that. It sounds to me like what you're doing is you're building some empathy and some, in the the lingo, emotional intelligence as you go that allows people to understand at a, a deeper level what the racial issues might be. Would that be a fair way to describe it? I really love that because empathy is the most important skill in my view, to bring to the discussion of diversity and inclusion. Because if you cannot take the perspective of others, you will not ever see these issues. The way bias works, we have blind spots. We all have bias. And those patterns of mind, of thinking, allow us conveniently to protect ourselves by not seeing all that right in front of us. Learning ways to unlearn the way we look at life and to begin to learn how others may see life is one of the biggest leadership skills that helps with not only diversity, equity, and inclusion, but with just being a good people leader. Oh, good point. It's only through beginning to have discussions with others that allows you to put on a different lens and imagine what life could be like for another person. That's the beginning of opening you up to understanding that other people that have different backgrounds and racial Makeups and experiences may not actually be experiencing life, even in your beloved organization, in the same way as you is the beginning of the discussion. 
Oh, very interesting. You'd think people would realize that, but we don't automatically realize those differences, do we? We don't. And I think we have a a bias toward positivity in business. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which helps us in a lot of ways because you have to be resilient, as you and I know. Oh, yes. <laughs> because you often, there may be periods where you're hearing more no's than yeses, or the marketplace is shifting and you have to remain positive. But in remaining positive, you may be overlooking something that's happened. And people don't like a focus on history. And they don't enjoy, hey, let's talk about the history of bias and discrimination in this country. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Not pleasant. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? That happened in the past. Why do we have to focus on that? But really, there are vestiges of our past that show up in our present. And they're often unseen, which is the talk about systemic or structural racism. And even though you don't go out and intend to, I'm going to pick a racist system and that's what I want to design in my company, that's where the implicit or unconscious bias discussion comes in. And I think a lot of, especially clients I coach, because I coach people all over the spectrum, some with not very significant cultural understanding that the belief is if I'm not intentionally going out and trying to exclude anyone, then I must be fair and my entire company must be fair. But there's often a lot more going on. As I say, is it an unseen hand that has made only four African-Americans in the United States CEOs of major companies? Yeah. Do we think that's really a meritocracy and that there's nothing going on except the best people are getting to the top. And yet we only have four out of tens of thousands. Right. Good point. You and I have been in the workforce long enough to remember when there weren't many women at the C-suite and executive level. I remember being in corporations where people were actually still saying, well, are there women qualified <laughs> to be in these roles? And I yeah. mean, it's, I've heard it for so many decades that it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I know, I know. And it's still there. It's still there. It is still there. But if you look in the same pool, which is your school you went to, your favorite place for recruiting, your buddies that you talk to, when you do look in that pool, there isn't a lot of diversity. That could be true. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means you need to widen your net. Exactly. Yes. And often that's the first place companies start is in the recruiting. But companies that have been at this for decades are doing much more in looking at progression rates, et cetera. And even all of that is important, but it's only a part of the discussion because the inclusion discussion, which is so important that Verna Myers was a diversity advocate who coined the phrase, diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. Oh, that's great. It's wonderful. What a great metaphor. 
Right. Because you could be sitting there, but your voice isn't really heard or your ideas aren't really accepted. And so that's what that sense of belonging and really being a part of fully included is what we are looking for now and what top organizations that want to be a best workplace are focusing on because there's so much data on the return on investment now that it's not just the nice thing to do, that businesses that fully include and use more diverse teams have better financial performance. Really? What do you attribute that to? Because you're getting the best ideas from all the people. Makes sense. Absolutely. And diverse, one of the studies said that even adding global diversity, I think it bumped up financial performance by 20%. So it's- Oh my goodness. But it's like if we were to make a company that only wanted to work on issues of Midwestern companies and- we included only people from Cincinnati. Yes. And as you and I know, (laughs) geographical difference in the way people relate to each other is fairly significant. So yes, indeed. If you have a set of individuals, let's just say in the South and they have a, I have a client in North Carolina, there's just a certain way and style of operating that they have that, if you come in with a completely different way of communicating, you're not going to get very far. And so having that understanding that at this plant in Georgia, we may need to use these tactics versus on the West Coast in California, we might need to pivot a little bit and do things a little differently. And so that's kind of a microcosm of why diverse teams perform better because they have more experiences. They bring more to the table. I know when I was at Procter & Gamble, we did not have a focus on an ethnic hair care business, but many of the Black research scientists, marketing professionals, and others for years were advocating we are missing a multi-billion dollar market. We think we need to pull a team together to look at this. Why did this not occur to others? Well, because they don't know anything about ethnic care. Right, (laughs) right. Is that really a market? Are you kidding me? It's worth $300 billion and we're not in it. Why is that? And now they have some leading products in that space that's bringing lots of money into the coffers because these people have different experiences and know some things about some things that we others may not know. So it's not just about employees being diverse and, and understanding each other's cultures better internally. It's also about the products and the advertising and the way they approach customers that makes a diverse team more effective, it sounds like. Yes. Yes, because the marketplace is diverse. Absolutely. We may not have much diversity in all our leadership ranks, but at some point our consumers are diverse. And Absolutely, yes. There are different ways that they engage with products. There, I know some product research that was being done 
in the early days, again, when I was at that consumer packaged goods company, diversity just is not just a discussion and let's have a kumbaya moment or only focus on what we're doing internally. But it makes sense from a bottom line business perspective that when we're treating people well internally, when we're including everyone, when all people are respected, when their understanding and voices can lead to innovation, then our external performance is going to be better. That's really a very profound statement and important, I think, for the listeners to understand. And that reminds me of something that I've noticed over the years, maybe not so much now, but well, it's still some now, where companies will hire a diverse workforce. But then when they talk about inclusion, they talk about including people in the conversation, but not respecting or acknowledging the differences that they bring. So the company's leaders would say, well, we include, we have these focus groups or we have these discussions and everybody can talk about their own positions in these discussions, but there's a subtle conformity that goes on. So that that the dominant opinions are the ones that are reinforced. So it's not really inclusion. And I don't see how in companies that do that, whether they're recognizing it or not, it's like they're socializing people in these diverse populations to be just like everybody else, to be like the dominant culture. And so you lose that you lose that real value that comes from diversity. Have you seen that lately? Is it getting better? Is Where are we with this socialization process in companies? I think there are pockets of places where it's, it's getting better, but there are many places where it is not. And what I hear you talking about, Kathy, is that if you have a, an assimilationist view of diversity, I won't, of course, divulge the client, but I had a client come to me maybe 10 years ago that said, we need to be more diverse. We recognize that and we need to do events that attract more diverse people on the outside. It was a nonprofit client. So can you come in and and talk to us? Because we realize we're not serving everyone in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, when I did an audit, and looked at all their programming, the kinds of programs they were executing did not appeal to a a diverse community. And Ah. frankly, they wanted more African-Americans. And when I talked with them about their programming, like these guitar nights, et cetera, it was like, do you think that, have you ever done research about what kind of entertainment (laughs) African-Americans want to come to. How many people are trying to participate in this? After looking at all the information and data presented, they said, you know what? What we realize is we do want diversity, but we want only diverse people that enjoy the same things that we are already doing. (laughs) I kid you not. What's the point then? (laughs) Exactly. But it's what you said, Kathy. What they were saying without knowing it is 
we want assimilated African-Americans that can enjoy things exactly as they are with the current leaders that we have. And yeah. if they could be happy just keeping everything exactly like it is, those are the Black people that we want to attract. Oh, my goodness. So how did you address that, Judy? I did not work with them. <laughs> uh, good. Good point. Excellent. Excellent. It reminds me of something that has been bothering me over the last many years now that I've seen, and I don't know whether companies are still doing this. I suspect they are. They're using these instruments, hiring instruments that they give to people, they give to candidates to measure the degree to which those candidates are going to fit into their culture. And I'm thinking, well, where are you going to get the innovation? If you hire people based on whether they already fit into your culture, you're not going to get any disruptors. And the disruptors are the ones who innovate. Are companies still doing that? How are they addressing diversity if they're hiring based on culture fit? This is a real interesting discussion. And as you said, it can be a slippery slope. On the one hand, you don't want everyone in your company to be a disruptor. You and I have worked with a client in the past who I think your experience, you can attest to, they hired like a million disruptors at one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because yes, you and I have had the experience of helping them deal with that. <laughs> right. And so when you hire a number of people who don't actually fit the current culture at the same time, their level of push against the organization, while significant and important, may end up being counterproductive. So that's what I think the merit of what people are hoping to do is that we don't want to bring in a person who's a genius and a financial whiz, but they're just so toxic that they are going to hurt the performance of others. And so that's why I think these instruments are designed and the intention is we want to find people that have the good traits that are going to make them successful here. But as you said, if they're not looking carefully at how they're measuring these traits and are these really traits for success or are they just traits for likeness? And I've worked with an assessment, I won't call it out, with another firm that I work with who wants to get we want these hard driving sales types that are resilient and can take no and keep pushing. And so they're very high on using assessments because they're looking to screen out people that may not be able to function in that kind of competitive struggle, daily struggle environment. But they did base it on the top performers that they have now saying we're trying to kind of clone these people. So we based an assessment on them and that's who we want to get. But as you said, as a consultant, my watch out was be careful that you're not just 
creating groupthink and you're not missing people that may be able to bring some other dynamic or some other layer of innovation. So if you are using an assessment, don't let it turn into the Bible where that's the only thing you look at is how that assessment says people do and that you're able to actually have an interview, talk with people, listen to their experiences because you may be really missing out on some people that don't fit the mold, so to speak. Yeah. And you talked about the disruptors hiring too many at one time can be a problem. And, and as you mentioned, sometimes disruptors can be toxic to a culture. And what I wonder, I don't know that there's an answer to this right now, but I, what I'm wondering is, can disruptors be disruptive without being toxic? It seems like that's an important distinction. Exactly. And I didn't mean to imply that every disruptor is not toxic. There are great people who think outside the box. Many, many people that are not as likely to push the system will have companies working in archaic ways forever. And so you definitely need that. And I, I love what our current workforce having five different generations working side by side now is doing because the younger generations are pushing a lot of our paradigms, are pushing companies to have more focus on balance and thinking of employees' total life. And so if we didn't have those voices coming in in mass into the organization, we wouldn't have this kind of systemic change that needed to happen. We needed to recognize employees are whole people. How much more have we started to see that in the COVID-19 days? Oh, yes. We need disruptors that cannot only operate in disruption, but they also can be team players. Yes, yes, yes. Very important point. Well, Judy, this conversation is so interesting. You and I could probably and have talked for hours about these things. And I wanted to thank you for coming. And I wanted to ask you as we close, are there certain tips or comments that you would like for the listeners to be sure and take away from this discussion? Yes, I would say to remember that This is a critical historic moment. And while you may not know actually how you can engage to do more around diversity, equity, and inclusion, that there are ways you can personally get involved. One of the first is getting some cultural informants in your life if you don't have any. Good advice. What I mean by that is just having relationships, something I think you're great at, Kathy, which is saying, looking at who are the 10 people that I go to most of the time when I have questions, when I have issues, and looking at how diverse or not diverse is this group. And if it doesn't have diverse voices in it, reach out to people. Because as we started the discussion, empathy or understanding really happens most powerfully in one-on-one interactions. Yes, indeed. Increase your cultural informants. And if you're inside a company, 
call a friend before you send a statement out. <laughs> uh, good good point. Good phone advice. A friend, phone a friend <laughs> on diversity, equity, and inclusion because these efforts of talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion without explicitly giving any reasoning for it are really, really starting to seem tone deaf. And it could be your Latinx friend who reads through it and goes, you know what? I think we need to really name racism and bias and that that's what we're looking for. And the reason we want to do it is because we don't want to miss out on great opportunities that could come if we examine ways that we're not allowing everyone to, to get through in our organization. And then I would say, do some easy Netflix viewing and understand more about the history of bias and discrimination in our country. Go ahead. It's not going to be that painful. And I think Netflix has even added an entire Black Lives Matter section now so that it's really really easy to get some education over the weekend. I watched a series recently that I didn't know was on there, led by uh, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates, uh-huh. called the African Americans. And it's just history from the first African person hitting the shores of the United States. And it goes all the way through to modern times. Very, very well done, very well researched, because there are reasons that we have some of the problems that we're experiencing in society And if you don't know the history, you may not understand the passion or where the generational systems of oppression, et cetera, have occurred and what that brings to the present day. So don't be afraid of looking at history. Good advice. I'm going to do it this weekend. Oh, good. (laughs) That's good advice. All right. Well, Judy, I thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to work with you and talk with you. And I'm glad to share you with the listeners in this episode. So thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. I'm so thankful for my colleagues like you who are really stepping into the uncomfortableness that could be there with these kinds of discussions. I think you're going to bring so much light to this discussion and encourage people to just dive in the deep water. I appreciate that so much. Well, I hope that that's what happens. Thanks again, Judy. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Culture Cafe. If you liked what you heard, connect with us at millerconsultants.com. You can access the show notes and receive our free materials. See you next episode.